Voxel Game Design. September 2018. Knoxville Gaming Convention Recap and Ludum Dare Entries. With Jacob, Dylan, Levi, and Joe. Welcome everyone to Knoxville Game Design for September 2018. We are developers in the Knoxville and East Tennessee area. Uh, we get together once a month to talk about our game projects and topics in the games industry. Uh, this month we have three people in the meeting. First of all, we have uh, Dylan Wolf in Lenore City. Hello. And we have Jacob in Knoxville. Hi. And I'm Levi Smith in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. So this month we're going to go over two main areas. The first one will be our Ludum Dare entries that we created. Uh, we'll go over those. Then uh, we're going to talk about the booth that we had uh, at the Knoxville Gaming Convention last month at CreepyCon. Uh, so, Jacob, uh, did you have your game up and ready to show off this month? Uh, I don't, <laughs> since I can't really do Hangouts or do this correctly on my actual computer. Oh, okay. So, I won't really be able to show it today. Um, I had some so video of it, if you want to talk through it. I'll, let me share out my screen here. Share. Mm -hmm. Share. And let's go up here. Okay. Let me see if I can make this bigger. Uh, can you see uh, what I'm showing? Yeah. On? Okay. Yeah, so you created a game called Fire. Um, yes. So you're trapped within this, like, closed-off forest area. And so you got to... Escape the forest before it burns down and you die. Yeah, it looks really cool. I, I like the fire effects that you had in it. And what? The fire effects, because it, it starts out like there's just fire around the starting area, then the fire just keeps expanding and keeps expanding. Yeah. Tall. Yeah, I think that was... So, the concept was that the fire would keep growing and consume the forest, and then... You know, you die, and any like things that were on fire, you touch, you die. But I don't know if it like worked all the way through because I couldn't fi quite find the sweet spot. And how I played is I just kind of walked through the forest, through the familiar bits to, to find where I knew instead of following the trails. So that might be something to do with it. Yeah, I, I like how you had like the three keys. The objective was to collect the three keys. And you sort of had like a path made out of rocks uh, that led mm -hmm. you to each of the keys. And then there's like this gate, which I think, uh, uh, I guess you're supposed to escape through the gate after you collected the three keys. Yeah, you're supposed to touch the gate and then the game is supposed to like told you, tell you you won and then it would like accept the game. Yeah. I thought it was really good. I liked how uh, you did the movement in the game. I think you're using like the updates in Game Maker, so it felt really smooth when you pressed the movement keys. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so I, was, I thought the fire effects were nice. And I noticed you had a lot of nice uh, other graphics in there, like a campground area and some tombstones and some things like that. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Um, I don't know if Joe Miller is going to be on. He hasn't joined yet, has he? Um, Joe made a game called Put Put What Where? And so basically in his game, I'll just do a short description of it. Um, there's these boxes that come down this conveyor belt. And each of these boxes have an arrangement of smaller colored squares. And you have a target configuration that you're supposed to make up here. So you can just draw, drag these little boxes around. And once you have... Uh, one of these boxes in the same configuration as the target up here. Um, I think you can deliver it. I think you just drag it up here. But it starts out pretty simple with just three colors and the box, the carts or whatever, pallets come pretty slow. But you get to the point where you get more colors and they become more complex and you you really got to look out for which spaces you have open and available. So pretty neat game uh the objective is to not let the these like pallets stack up too much over here and oh, i can hear myself talking in the background um yeah and uh, you get score based on how many of these you complete and i think uh and and um how quickly you complete these or maybe it's based on the configuration um, can I mute myself here? Uh, my game was called Crazy Delivery. I don't know if I have any gameplay up and ready to go. Um, let me pull up the Ludumdare site. And basically in my game you have, and you select one of three delivery trucks. Each truck has a unique properties. So like the smallest one here, it goes really fast, but it doesn't have great turning. You have a medium-sized delivery truck. Um, it, it turns slowly, but uh, has slow speed. Then you got the bigger truck, which is obviously bigger. It's harder to navigate, but it does have pretty good speed as well. Um, I got the idea for this game from Crazy Taxi. Um, and also with these three different delivery trucks, they have different capacities. The smallest one can only carry two packages. The largest one can carry six. So uh, there's pluses, pros and cons to each of the vehicles. You pick the smallest one, it can go really fast, but you can't load up as many packages. So basically you pick up these different colored packages and deliver them to the associated uh house of the same color so you basically try to deliver all the packages within the time limit which is set to 60 seconds so i don't think i mentioned it earlier but the theme for this ludum dare which we mentioned in the last episode of knoxville game design was running out of space so all these games were uh based on running out of space uh, so next, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the Knoxville Game Design booth at CreepyCon, Knoxville Gaming Convention. So Dylan, I know uh, before the convention, you actually wrote an article right here. 
um, about uh, how you used uh, the Kindle Fire uh, for your display and also the Intel Compute Sticks? Yeah, I haven't actually written anything on the Intel Compute Sticks, but um, essentially what the, the Compute Stick is, is it's this little, I think you can get one for like $160, $170. It'll run basic Unity games, and it just, it's, it's a little thing that looks a little bit larger than a Chromecast and runs um, Windows. So it's it's a really convenient way to just, you know, do demos on pretty much any TV. Um, yeah, I know it did a really good job, like, running Knox Runner. Uh, I know that's just a 2D game. So I'm, I'm actually interested in getting one myself just to see... Uh, how it would actually handle 3D games because I know uh, in Unity you can like turn down the graphics settings so maybe it would be enough to run a 3D Unity game I don't know I think so like I get the sense it's a little bit underpowered for you know compared to like a laptop or something but um, it's probably I, I would bet it's probably more than enough for the type of games that you know we end up building just because they're not yeah, I don't know if you can see it on my screen right now, but I do have the Intel site pulled up. Yeah. And they range from different prices, so it isn't just like one. It isn't like a Raspberry Pi, one size fits all. You can, they, looks yeah. like they start from $121, $121 to all the way up to like 470 Yeah. So. Yeah. I can't, like I said, I think I got a model that was like 150 160 It may not be one that, that's current on here. I can't remember where I got it, to be honest. Maybe been like Amazon or Best Buy. Um, but yeah, that that's really convenient. Um, one thing I make a point to do is I don't like running demos on my la my laptop or something like something I'm logged in with other accounts and someone could you know you know e even if it's on my own like tablet or something you can do less than you can do on a computer, but you can still like, you know, if someone got a hold of it. They can still like rack up charges or something. So I just, um, yeah, I know I had my laptops kind of behind the televisions, yeah. but still somebody could walk back there and just a big clunk of laptops are inconvenient as well. Um, I know I tried setting up your Intel compute stick the first day. Oh, and, yeah. And it's a little bit tricky. It's nice because it's so small and it just has like an HDMI on the back and you just snap it in. And then you can use, you had like a USB hub that you plugged in. And I think from yes. that USB hub, then you could plug in the keyboard and the mouse and all the game pads and everything. Yeah, I basically had it set up so I could plug in all four of my retro links or the USB SNES controllers. Um, that's a whole other tangent because uh, <laughs> I've got two types and they each map axes differently. So like I've since got four of the retro links so that they're all consistent. Um, these are things you do have to think about. Like again, you know, it's not, it's probably not a big deal. Uh, if the controllers are a little different, it's probably not a big deal if you're using a machine that, you know, you, you actually use and, and have your accounts on, but it's, it just feels better to remove that one little glitch. Um, yes. But yeah, the article, 
was basically setting up a Kindle Fire. Mm-hmm. Um, Kindle Fires I, I like using for demos. I've I've got one that I, I used at McKay's, and I actually bought two other ones. Uh, the main gist is like you can usually find them pretty cheaply. Like Woot is actually owned by Amazon, and if you watch from time to time, they'll do sales on Kindle Fire. Yeah, I actually brought it up. Woot. I haven't ever been to Woot before, but yeah, it looks like they have a lot of refurbished um, uh, yeah. tablets and things. So you said, I saw in your articles, like, yeah, just go to computers and tablets. And they have a lot of yeah. refurbished uh, tablets on here. But like you mentioned, you got to, I guess, watch out and watch when they have a deal or when they yeah. have stock when they actually have the devices in stock, but yeah, like right here, they have this Amazon fire seven inch for 18 bucks, but they're all sold out. (laughs) And amazon.com will actually do that in their deals. But I I feel like they're really good for demos. If you're running Android games, just because like you're not buying an off brand tablet, you're buying, um, you know, one, you, you know, is going to be pretty decent at it, uh, at, at running, an application that said there are a couple issues you have to look out for one is that if you buy an older um i think it was 2013 2012 or before which i have done it doesn't run the most recent version of unit or unity doesn't support android that far back oh, so okay. you have to to recompile um yeah. and the yeah, I don't that know if that's great. like honeycomb or ice cream sandwich or. I don't remember what it was. I, I think I, I think I made a note in the article because the two I just bought off of Woot for CreepyCon were like that, and I had to install Unity five point five and rebuild. Um, because I didn't know that an Amazon Amazon Kindle could actually run Unity games. That actually surprised me. You, well. Kindle, okay, so the, the original Kindles, the ones that were like the black and white readers that were made to basically function, I don't want to say function like an ebook and just an ebook, are one thing. The Fire, the Kindle Fire tablets are their line of Android tablets, which essentially, you know, they've got an app store. They've kind of got their own little ecosystem, kind of like Google does. And that's, you know, plus content and streaming and everything. So with that, with the Amazon Fire, you don't have to like jailbreak it or anything like that. To... Nope. It. Um, do you it's have to like just... sideload an APK. You do, and you do if you don't register an account. Oh, okay. So like you can't just I can't just go out and install something off the App Store. Um, and I explicit and I mentioned that in the article. Like I explicitly didn't register an account. So again, that you know, there's not something linked up to my Amazon account or even a empty Amazon account. Um, but yeah, the other, the other nice thing is they have HDMI out on them, like a physical HDMI out port. Um, so you either get, I can't remember what they're called. There's like a, um, there's two types, like one's a micro or mini HDMI and one is can't remember it's some sort of usb you can buy an adapter for it plug it up to a tv and there's you know there's kind of like your display piece so yeah um i know you wrote really good instructions for setting it up and everything um yeah we found out if you don't if you're not using the right power supply 
Um, it, yes. It, you, it will crash when you try to run a Unity game, or it'll just like drain. It's like the Unity app takes so much power and everything. Uh, but just by itself, uh, you can log in. It gives you like a Windows interface. You log in with an account. It's just like you're ru- running Windows right there. Um, it is a little bit slow, but when it was playing Knox Runner, I mean, it was playing fine. I mean, it worked. Yeah, because I'm not I'm not doing anything really complicated there. Um, but yeah, I think the issue is it, it's convenient. It actually uses a USB connector. I didn't realize that for, for its power, but if you use the wrong adapter, then it's not going to draw enough. I've had the same problem with raspberry Pis, where like I use the wrong adapter and it, it does weird things. Yeah. Cause I always assumed like any, like usb type adapter would work with anything else but i guess you really got to make sure it's like got the right ampage and everything and yeah because i know like if i use like the wrong adapter on my phone sometimes it'll pop up and say hey you're using the wrong adapter please use an official one for this device and yeah i don't know if you can actually blow up a phone or anything using the wrong adapter but i don't think so like i think i think essentially I don't know enough about electricity to say, but like a higher amperage adapter will work on a lower amperage phone. It's just not going to pull as much, mm-hmm. but yeah, if you're, if you're using a phone that need, or, you know, a tablet or a compute stick that needs more power than the adapter can give it, you're going to have issues. Yeah. Cause um, I, I know uh, when I had the wrong adapter, when it started unity, it would just go to, Input signal lost. It's just like, okay, I'm yeah. not getting enough juice. I'm shutting down. Um, but yeah, going back to the tablets, I think those worked really well because um, I know you had three on display. And I was going to show some of these pictures. Let me share these out. But yeah. the thing about the tablets is, well, it's like, well, if they're 20 bucks, you really don't have to police them or anything. Uh, you don't want somebody walking off with one, but right. But if you do happen to lose one, it's like, well, you're out twenty bucks. I mean, it, yeah. it could. It's not like a, a three thousand dollar MacBook Pro. <laughs> yeah, that, sitting that, out there. that was kind of my fear. Um, and, and plus, I think it helps with like we've done a few of these, and I think we've all kind of found ways of making making demos repeatable. So, I mean, that was what I was trying to do when I gave you the instructions. Like I wanted something that I could set up, you know, I could come back a year later and go, okay, here's exactly how to set up the booth. Cause that, that makes things go smoother for you. And I think it also makes the experience better for someone who's sitting down to play. They don't have to think as much about, you know, okay, what, you know, what do I need to do? What do I need to remember? Nah, just pick up the controller and go. Yeah, because I know I'll, I'll set up things, and then, like, the next year, it's like, oh, what did I do here? Like, with my Raspberry Pi arcade stick, which I have a picture of somewhere in here, I was doing a, uh, a scratch demo of a simple scratch game that I created with the bear catching honey, and I actually put the like the pinout diagrams inside the case just in case I yeah. to go back and it's like oh how did, was this thing wired up? Um, that would be rough. Like I, I like something that complicated that I would worry that I would not hook that up right. Yeah, it's the exact type of thing I'm talking about. 
it's once you have it going, it works fine. You just plug it in. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, trying to go back later and figure out how it was wired up can be kind of difficult. Um, yeah, sometimes I get these next buttons and sometimes they don't display. So this was like early on, like the first day of the booth. Um, I guess you guys can see this. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I tried to get a picture in my mind, like what the booth would be. We had a 20 foot by 10 foot booth. Uh, I want to give a special thanks to, uh, Brad, Bradley Drake, <laughs> who, who ran the Knoxville gaming, uh, design or Knoxville gaming convention part of this. Yeah. So I think they're going to do, this was like the preview of it and they had like us knoxville game design token game tavern uh level up games also here in knoxville they were selling games and had some games on display and also some like random uh what's the game with the bean bags uh cornhole, cornhole. Yeah, yeah cornhole and jenga life-size jenga i think they had like a vr booth they had a couple of people selling like custom yeah. arcade cabinets and they had extra life there that was doing streaming so they had a they had a pretty good setup i think for you know i i didn't see how many people were actually in like the board and video gaming area but i almost felt like your your vendors and your community tables would pull as much um interest as your actual content which is you know good place to be for something like this yeah I, I think it definitely helped us i mean just to i don't know, bring awareness of our group what we're doing who we are um but yeah i totally forgot about the vr setup that they had um that was cool i didn't get to try it out but it was like a game that joe miller was telling me about where you got these lightsaber type things and hitting objects. So yeah, sorry about cutting off your arm. That, this, that's fine. <laughs> I didn't even realize that. I was just doing a quick thing. I and posted it, and then I, I saw. Do that, oh, go ahead. I do that all the time when I I do if I do like a panorama, like something will get cut weird. Yeah, I, I was just doing a quick picture of the booth and posted it on social media. Then I saw like ten replies to. I was like, what in the world's going on here? Yeah. Um, yeah, the handouts were good. The, the brochures were very popular among our other handouts. I like the brochures because it has all our information for four yeah. regular attendees with all our information. So I can just hand somebody one thing. And... Yeah, I, I do think it's, and I don't know that we've solved this problem. And I, I, I assume other groups have this problem where it's like, it's hard to figure out what you want to do with that sort of marketing. Like, are you marketing, are you advertising the group? Cause it's a meetup group and you know, like you, you want people to, to come and, and kind of engage and, you know, do demos and things like that. Or are you trying to sell games? And if you're trying to sell, you know, like how do the two cross over? Um, I, th I think that was the biggest myth misconception as people came by our booth or like, Oh, are you selling stuff here or, uh, well, the first thing is a lot of people said, wow, you guys actually make games. So yeah. I think that's one misconception is like, oh yeah, we actually do make games here in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, we don't like do it for a living or anything. So that's like one of the first things I always told people is like, yeah, this is kind of a hobby for most of us. Um, yeah. We, and, I, and that's, that's also hard to do. Cause you like, there's, 
there's been varying numbers of people in the group over the years and it's like how do you speak for everyone and not be like because i'm always afraid of coming off as like hey buy stuff from me like you know yeah yeah and i didn't want to make it like specifically about one member or anything and even during the brochures like oh who do we include in the brochure i know we have a pretty good core group with myself you dylan jacob and joe miller other people have come and gone so it's like well if, if other people start coming regularly then i would be more willing to include them in the promotional yeah. materials and you're doing those like in such small quantities that it's not a huge issue it's not like you know we've got a you know a crate full of them back somewhere and then you know if 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 things change in a couple of years that we're just going to have to throw them all out. Oh yeah. We gave away a lot of brochures. I think I had 50 and they were all gone. <laughs> I think I might've gave, given a few away before just like at our kickoff for Ludum Dare and things like that. But yeah, the brochures, we gave away a lot of those and yeah, I'm happy. I mean, bring awareness to the group, but uh, yeah, like you're saying is like, well, do we focus on being a group? community group or individual developers i mean i guess in this capacity it is as the knoxville gaming uh design group but you still want to let people know that hey we do have individual projects that we do have on major platforms yeah i I do think that's like we can do depending on where they go next year with it we could go we could do a booth next year but we could also do talks and stuff if they're set up for that and i think that's probably more helpful for people who are curious is let's talk about what game design actually looks like because it's a big jump between you know someone hands you a a brochure because you're interested um at a booth and actually getting into it yeah i know you brought that up with uh brad bradley uh in the message and it sounds like he was open to that in a, in a future thing. Also, one mention that I got a message from Corey Johns. I'll just briefly mention this, but he was talking about the Tennessee Art. I think it's like a Tennessee Arts Commission, and they were looking for input. So there may be some opportunity to maybe cross promote with them, or I'm not exactly sure what program they're going to be starting up there. But uh, yeah, this is this is a good picture. So we had what we had the Raspberry Pi on a monitor, the Xbox One running Kitty's Adventure. Dylan's no- Dylan, you had Knox Runner on a monitor with, and I like your Knox Runner because it's like the only multiplayer game that we had, so it was really yeah. popular. Uh, if you had a couple of people came up and they just wanted to play a game. It was specifically built for demos. Like you can play a game in 30 seconds. You can play up to four people. You know, it's it. It's not too taxing. It doesn't take a lot to figure out. It's just go. Yeah, I think that's one thing we talked about at the convention is having a convention mode for games because I know some of my games I was just doing the standard build and every time somebody finished playing I had to go over there and reset the game so yeah uh, that's something you usually don't think about when you're doing a, a gaming booth but it's good to have like an automatic reset after a certain period of time so if somebody else comes in and starts playing the game they're not stuck in the middle of somebody else's game yeah 
Um, yeah, so Joe Miller, he had uh, a laptop and also a tablet where he was showing off his Steam game, uh, Kufi's Delivery Service. And Dylan, you also had your three uh, tablets. I, I like the little yeah. photo display things, the little wire displays. Oh, yeah. So, like, I went to Walmart Friday night, and if you go into, like, the picture frame section, you can find these little wire frames that you can, like, stick paper or something in. If you bend them just right, they're like a dollar. And if you bend them just right, you can actually set up a tablet so that, you know, it's kind of visible what it is. Someone doesn't actually have to walk up and look down at your table. Yeah, because if you've got a tablet just sitting on the table, like you're saying, it's just really hard to see there. So, Yeah. And I think that's a huge part of it is, like, you don't want... Because I know when I, I go to things like this, I don't want to walk up and be like someone immediately being like, Hey, you know, let me show you this. Let me show you that. Like, let me get comfortable with what's going on here. And then I'll, I'll check something out. <laughs> that was another issue that I think we had was, uh, people didn't know if they were allowed to play the games. I don't know if making like a yeah. big signs that says, Hey, please play our games. If that would have helped. I mean, I, I don't know. Like I, I think, um, that's, that's tough. Cause I don't know if it's like, I think a lot of it is we're, we're showing games and not necessarily communicating what, like I said earlier, what we're doing, you know, Hey, this is a meetup group. Yeah. We, you know, we'd like for you to download or buy our games, but also, you know, Hey, just feel free to ask us questions. Yeah. I, th I think like yeah. putting the chairs out here in front too, it's like, okay, pull up a chair and play. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think we had a, a nice, um, uh, mix of people there were there were some people because we were close to the big main stage of creepy con so after they had some event some magician or whatever zombie fashion yeah. show we had a lot of people coming by and you can tell the people that were coming by and they're like oh okay that's interesting but i really don't want to stop and play games then you had people that actually wanted to stop and play games and then you had a few people that came by and were like interested in learning how on how to make games yeah um i know we had one guy uh zane i forget his last name but he was from uh, the igda in atlanta yeah he, he started asking questions and i feel kind of bad because he was asking like hey you know are you guys in llc why why not and i'm, I'm i started answering questions like he was you know just some guy who wasn't familiar with this and then he's like, oh, yeah, by the way. I'm like, oh, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, yeah I think he's tied in. professional. Yeah, I think he's tied in with like SiegeCon, which is yeah. kind of like a mini GDC in Atlanta. Uh, he invited us to come down to that. I think he said that there are, we were talking about it. I know they have talks and they may have booths as well. Um, so that might be something we could do in the future, but... I, I, I just don't know if I want to spend three days in Atlanta. If it's just yeah. one day, I'd be more open to that. It's that that's a that's a big convention. Like that's that's kind of a big commitment there. Yeah, but, it seems like I've heard of SiegeCon before. I just never. Um, never I definitely really. have. It's just not never been the thing. I've you know like there's been a group of people that's like, hey, let's go down and check this out. It would just be me going down if I did it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's coming up pretty soon in October, and it seems like the ticket prices were like in the standard yeah. one hundred and fifty, hundred to one hundred and fifty dollars. Yeah, again, it's it's a professional conference for, for the most part, and that doesn't necessarily line up with where we are. <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering if they put their videos online because I know like GDC puts all their stuff online eventually, and I know even the one in Lexington Vector they put all their stuff online. So. I mean, it is good to go out and meet people and talk with other people, but it is also convenient if they put their video online as well. Um, yeah, so I made a sign, Knoxville Game Design, the glossy. I don't know if I would use the glossy paper again because sometimes it makes it kind of hard to see. Yeah. Um, they also make it where you can get a hard back to it as well. Our sign was kind of floppy. I think next time I would just like get a piece of cardboard and tape it to the back just to make it a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Like I said, you, like, you could get like foam core or something like that and just like paste it on there. Yeah. Um, again, this was my first time doing a, a full convention booth. So like, yeah. these are things you learn. Um, and the other thing is, is like the background for the booth. It, it was kind of plain. I was like looking at other booths and a lot of them kind of built upward. Ours was just kind of plain. So, and this is like a decision is like, well, how much money do you want to spend on a community group booth? Uh, yeah. I mean, I would like to have like a big sign back here that said Knoxville game design and maybe some pictures of games or even monitors like a stand up monitor. But yeah, all that costs extra money to make banners and stuff. Yeah. And I don't know that, I don't know how much it's worth it to do that. Cause you know, like, if, if you're thinking about like big conventions that go around to other conventions and do this sort of thing, then they'll have that. Um, <clears throat> but then, you know, if you go to a convention and they just have like community tables for other conventions or clubs or organizations, it's usually something pretty much like this, just plain. Like the, the people you see building up in a lot of cases are the vendors who actually have like shelves of product or something. They're doing this professionally. This is their yeah. job. Yeah. And also they have stuff to display there. Like that's, that's kind of intrinsic to what they're doing. Not just like, you know, for us, it's, it's the, it's the brochures and, and the demos. Exactly. Yeah. I, yeah. Just things to think about uh, for next time. Yeah. Um, yeah. I didn't bring any string. I would have brought some string cause I had like one sign that I, I didn't have any way to post it up or anything. Um, yeah. The one thing that the one idea that I had was like putting the names of the games on top of the monitors. Cause I knew that was going to be like the first question everybody asked was like, Oh, what's this game? Especially yeah. if somebody's playing it. So just having the, and I haven't ever seen anybody else do that really. Uh, aside from having, well, I think one difference between our booths, our booth and the booths at a lot of other gaming conventions is like uh, other booths are just promoting one thing, one game. Yes. So they're going to have like one big sign for their game, but we're promoting like our group and like five or six other games. I do think there's an aspect there of like, it might be too much choice because um, it's like, okay, what, which one of these do I want to do? Um, I actually, I think putting the name on there is good. Um, partially because it's good to just have this TV is playing just this game. 
I know at previous demos, I've actually set up like a demo station where you can go through all of my games and just, you know, pick whichever one you want to play. And so like the idea there is you've got this level of flexibility that if you want to play this little platformer, then you can do that. And if you want to play this puzzle game, you can do that. And you're, you know, there's something for everyone, but it's a lot easier to just, Hey, here's a controller. Hey, here's a mouse. Here's this one game, you know, jump in. You don't have to make a decision. Yeah. We talked a little bit about that as well. Even back at the McKay's retro night event, um, the fewer decisions people have to, even with the games themselves, if it's a complex game, where it's like a, it's gotta be something where people can pick up and maybe press one button and play it. I mean, if if it requires multiple buttons and instructions, if somebody has to read instructions, forget about it. Unless they're just really dedicated to sitting down and playing your game. But most people just want, and your tablets were great for this. Somebody could pick up shifty shapes and start instantaneously moving the shapes around or even with retro future. Um, yeah and that i had that experience at momocon uh with a couple booths where like there was a game that i would have really enjoyed if i could have sat down in kind of like the quiet of my own home and kind of started learning what was going on but when you're in a room full of people and you know there's all these different kind of logical leaps you have to make to get you know to learn about it it's just a lot more to pick up. Especially when you're at a convention where there's all these other beasts and people, people's yeah. attentions are divided. Now, with the Retro Game Night, we knew everybody at Retro Game Night was there to play games. And yes. they knew they could pick up a controller and start playing. So it's just kind of knowing your audience. I suppose. Yeah. Um, um, actually, there's a, another good thing I would point out with the knowing your audience bit was... Um, and I guess this kind of figures into if you're doing a booth like this, where do you want to target it? But um, like, I think us as like, you know, 30 something gamers think of like, okay, our target audience is the guy who grew up playing Nintendo. Um, maybe, you know, plays some sort of more hardcore game now or, you know, or something like that. Um but it seems like when you have those people come up, they're like, oh, you do game design, like Fortnite or like, you know, Overwatch or something like that. And yeah. you have to go, not exactly. But the people, like the people who really get into it are the ones who want to play, are happier with simpler games. Like you, you get a lot of kids coming up, people who wouldn't necessarily be interested in game design, but the type of game that, that a single person could make you know, a, a, a solo project by a hobbyist is the exact type of game that, you know, a kid could get into. Yeah, I think that's another good selling point for us is like maybe on a sign or something say, hey, made in Knoxville. Because I know we, 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 we get support yeah. just because it's made in Knoxville. Because I know a lot of things I see, oh, made in California or made in Georgia or, or wherever. So. yeah. I think that's definitely a good selling point, especially when we do local events like this. Yeah. But I think it, it kind of helps to know your audience and not be like, okay, yeah, you know, hardcore gamers are going to love this. Hardcore gamers are not going to understand this because casual games are sometimes oh, yeah. just like beyond them. <laughs> and I think with some of the younger kids that stopped by our booth, 
I don't think they really understood that, hey, we made these. I remember like one kid was like, oh, who's Levi Smith? And I'm like, hey, I'm Levi Smith. So, and, Hey, that's that's good, though. Like, and then one kid is like, oh, what's this? Can you put Call of Duty on here? I was like, no. Yeah, yeah. and that's exactly what I'm talking about. Like, <laughs> Nothing against the kid. I mean, I understand. Yeah. He, he just doesn't understand these were games made by us. Well, I know if, if I was at that age, like, I played Nintendo and I would not have understood the concept of like, no, no. Like I, I'm on my Nintendo. I want to play Mario. Like you, you have a Nintendo here. Why are we, why are we not playing Mario? Exactly. You have an Xbox here. Why are we not playing call of duty? And we were pretty close to level up as well. And they had demos of professionally yeah. made games. So maybe some people just might, may not have, made that distinction between our booth, which is locally Knoxville developed games. And then the other professionally yeah. developed games are over here. But I think what I'm getting at, and I'm not, I'm not trying to make that sound like, ah, people who don't, you know, get, get these games or, you know, just don't get it. It's like, you kind of don't, don't be fixated too much on like, here's the type of person who's going to want to sit down and play my games. So that that's the type of game I'm going to bring and set up. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think it's just good that we had a wide variety of games. It was like the kiddies yeah. game. You can just pick it up and you can play with the thumbstick. Then we had Knox Runner, where you can actually have multiple players and you have a couple of buttons and Joe had his tablet and everything. Um, I also wanted to give a big thanks to Jacob's mother, Kimberly, who, who kind of helped run our group <laughs> or booth right here. I was just going to mention, I mean, I, I guess I didn't realize how long it was going to be because I went down there Thursday night and they were, they were very helpful, like putting carts and putting everything in our booth right there. I mean, they didn't set it up, but they hauled everything over there. But the first day it was like four till 11 or 10 PM, something like that. And then the second day was 11 a.m. till 8 p.m. And then nothing against the organizers, but there really wasn't a defined uh, exit <laughs> strategy for us getting yeah. out of there. And there were some issues like, oh, can we pull up to the front and unload or whatever? I don't want to get into all that. but yeah. I, I think there was. And I think the thing we have to remember is, like, this was a vendor booth. Mm -hmm. So that's the type of thing that if you were going to a convention and you were a vendor, you would expect that I'm going to be able to pull my van up to the loading dock at this time, unload everything. I'll have, you know, whatever resources I need. Whereas we're thinking very much like, you know, a community table of, at a con of like, we've got a couple of volunteers here and there's no way we're going to have so much stuff that we need, you know, like we're not selling anything. We don't have inventory, you know, this should be easier. Um, it's just like something lost in translation there. Yeah. Cause I know like all the other events, like the sun sphere with the Knox devs or the Emory place block party, we've done maker police. I don't know if you're with that one, but it's no, another, I wasn't with that one. yeah, but those were like, uh, uh, oh, we got to carry all our stuff in. And yeah. some, some of those monitors can be pretty heavy and everything. So, yeah, I appreciate everybody at the Knoxville Gaming Convention, CreepyCon, for helping us set up. I know Bradley was very helpful. I, I had, like, everything set up on the first day, then, like, all the power just went out. I was like, oh, crud, <laughs> we're in trouble here. Yeah. So he was able to find, like, the power guy and get everything turned back on. It's like a loose cable and everything, and they were very helpful getting all that set up. 
Um, yeah, I think that's all the pictures that I had. Uh, Jacob, are you still with us? Yeah, I'm still here. Do you have any thoughts on the gaming convention booth or anything with CreepyCon? Uh, no, not really. <laughs> okay. Well, we appreciate you coming out, and uh, I think you showed off Lost Signal. That was a Ludumdari game yeah. that you created a while back. Yeah. Created that one a while ago. Yeah. Very cool. Um, yeah, so I was just going to show one more thing that I forgot about earlier. Uh, one small thing that I've been working on. Um, I got a lot of games, and I did a full like video on this, so you can go to my YouTube if you want to know more about this. But I got a lot of Unity projects. They're all running on different versions of Unity. So I wrote this little Ruby program. I've been getting into GTK Plus 3, which is like an open source GNOME uh it's like the AWT in Java, like uh, those components, windowing, and, and things like that. So I got it where you can press check, and you can it will actually read through a directory of Unity projects and pull out all the version numbers. So this gives me an idea. It's like, oh, here, here's all the projects that need to be updated. Like, here's an old one that's running Unity 5, just a way to keep these updated. I want to get, get it to where I can actually click on these. I just got it now where you can select projects. You can display the selected ones right here, but I want to get it where I can automatically compile all these, maybe generate like the WebGL builds for all my projects with one click. So, yeah. Is there a way to do that in Unity? Yes, there is a way to uh, compile. It's command line, isn't it? Yeah, by command line. So I got these, uh, I actually got build scripts right here. And let's see here, if you get, yeah, I don't have any currently out. Let, let me go back up. Um, I got it where those are can dynamically generate these batch files. So I'm going to right click and go to Notepad. So I got this build all, which is generated. Um, yeah, you just call uh, the Unity executable and you can use dash batch mode and put this log okay. file. And then you specify a project path. Now, this is where your Unity game is located. Then you can either use dash build Linux player or bat build OSX universal player or build Windows player. Then you specify the output directory. Uh, I think the batch mode flag actually is kind of like the silent mode. Yeah. If you don't have batch mode, then it will actually open the Unity window. But if you do batch mode, it'll just run silently. Um and then after I just do an echo bell, just so whenever this is finished, it will ping and let me know. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, I won't know when it's finished. Um, so it just it just hit me. I've probably asked this before, and my confusion probably goes back to I remember at one point I was like, I use the uh, compiler directives a lot in mine, like, and that was the thing that you can't do. You oh, to the command line. Yeah. Yeah, I really haven't worked is, with. No. with that much i know i've been doing some of the uh the xbox stuff the uwp and i've always thought it's like yeah it'd be really nice if i could just set a flag that says if if it's for xbox then show the xbox stuff show the little icon yeah. for the xbox buttons if not uh then just do the standard buttons uh, and there's ways to do that with like the global variables and and things like that but for it to actually detect if it's running on an xbox and automatically set that that variable i haven't figured that out i want to say because there's a um 
you know you can do like uh, pound sign if, and then like unity underscore. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, something like the, like an if def Xbox or something. Yeah, I think they've got some automatically defined. Like the but you can also set them custom under like project. It's like um, build settings or something. Because I'll do that if I'm compiling for when I've compiled for Amazon App Store and Google Play. I just use that and flip stuff out. Yeah, stuff like that. Well, really helpful when you're developing on multiple platforms I, I just know when i was doing the xbox stuff you have to like import a project with all the xbox stuff and once you convert it to be an xbox app then it's hard to go back without like surgically removing yeah. all the xbox stuff and then going back so i heard i think i heard jacob say something sorry we've been well, talking over you <laughs> well i gotta go so oh well thanks uh, for showing up jacob welcome i'll probably be at the next thing but i gotta go yeah that's so fine joe. hey hey joe how's it going good i uh i forgot what oh it's okay um uh, uh, i talked about your game uh a little bit but i probably didn't do it justice um <laughs> if you want to go right. over uh Put what where? I saw that you did. You put a, a post on uh, doublesquare.com, and it looks like you did really well in innovation. I think. Yeah, like seventy ninth. That's I think that's the best result I've gotten out of a Ludum Dara game so far. Yeah, I don't think I've ever made the top one hundred in anything. <laughs> so that that's definitely really good. I'm surprised. I didn't know. Does it track the compost separate from the jam? Together. I think uh, I think they're separate. I think I think the ratings for jam and compos are separate. So I think there's like a first, second, third place for jam, then the first, second, and third place for compo. Yeah, if you have that, uh, if you have it, uh, and you want to share it out and tell us a little bit about it, that would be cool. Sounds like your mic's cutting out a little bit. That, uh, okay yeah i hear you now yeah, i don't have it up and running at the moment i, I just got down on the computer yeah <laughs> yeah sorry to put you on the spot uh yeah uh, i mean the so the game was kind of like loosely based on what i do in my day job which is fulfillment for orders at am like amazon orders um uh, it's not all i do at work but it's one of the things we do i think i have video of it uh, if you can't bring it up, but I think I can. Like, yeah, there, uh, there it goes. Uh, which is uh, kind of the gist is that there's new boards that come in that you don't have control over that are any number of random colors on them and you can bring them over into this area where you can sort them out to try to match uh, whatever you need to for up here and then the, the things that are up here the target or goal shapes and colors they kind of randomly get replaced as soon as you're able to get one and the longer it's there uh, the less points it's worth. So the faster you are at it, the more points you get. Yeah, very cool. So it starts out 
kind of simple with just three colors of, of boxes, green, red, and blue. Yeah, and then around, I think around the fourth or fifth board, it adds in yellow. And then after eight or ten, somewhere in there, it uh, also adds in pink or purple, whatever color that was, pink. Yeah, I'm actually colorblind, so this was interesting from my side. Oh, to make sure that it was working. I didn't know that. Yeah, I've been playing a game. I think it might have been a free game on the PlayStation Four called Hue, and that is really based on colors. But they do have like the colorblind mode in there, where they put different symbols and things on there. Yeah, a lot of the time while I was developing this, I I kept um, kind of like a debug mode on where I was having their the color where like one is red and two is green and three is blue because they're all actually just blank squares i didn't make uh separate sprites for everything i I just color them in in real time one thing i noticed from levi's video earlier it looks like you're not randomizing this like this is a uh like there's a progression right sort of uh i i took control over the first couple to make sure that it would stay possible. But I think after about the fourth one, it, it is totally random. Okay. Uh, uh, I, I was working on a way to make them be smart. So when it picked a new board up here at the top, it would pick its colors based on what it knew that you had. And I do have a couple global variables that are tracking, like the total number of green, blue, red, yellow that are on the board. But I didn't actually get that part uh, functional for the gem version. I was still drawing uh, different colors than uh, what it should have been. So I, I eventually dropped that and just made it random just to finish. I also noticed as you play through the game, you'll eventually get more slots for the... I, I just call them pallets, I guess. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of the idea. Was these were pallets, and then these were... Uh, boxes on the pallets. Uh, I know one of the hardest things I was actually struggling with was just the basic drag and drop, which is stuff I've done a lot. But like being able to pick between uh, when you're clicking on a box in the pallet versus the whole pallet. Um, and then also like when you're dropping it, whether if you're overlapping multiple squares to like which one you're intending when you let oh. go. Yeah, I just noticed that, that like whenever you're hovering over the boxes with a box, then it and kind of lights up. But yeah, if it's hovering over multiple, yeah, I, I wouldn't know how you would choose that. I guess whichever one the mouse pointer is closest to. Uh, I actually just went with whichever one it, it tagged first. Oh, okay. So I guess you could like highlight one and kind of bring it down. Or set, well, I guess not. Maybe I just did whichever one it was more over mm -hmm. percent wise. I went, I tried a couple different things to get it working so that it was um, keeping track of, yeah, I think it's whichever one it's more over. That's one so, of yeah, those things closer. that when you're playing a game, you really don't think about, but one of those really hard problems when you're actually making the game. <laughs> Yeah, I, I went through two different versions when I was making it where I had where each uh, spot for one was its own object. 
like top left, middle, or top middle, top right, bottom left, and that way it I could check like what each one had. But I was trying to redo it so that I could just have a pallet spot, one object, and it wouldn't matter where it was at. It still behaved the same, and I could just create more of them and have a bunch of them anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to like redo a little bit for stuff like that where you're moused over two of them so it wasn't becoming like a true statement that you're dropping in both or stuff wouldn't get duplicated or freeze while it was trying to figure out what it wanted you or what you meant to do when you were moving around. The two things that I want to do next with this are, are make it so that if you take a single box and put it somewhere else, that it would uh, swap them. Oh, yeah. That, that would so be that, nice. Yeah. That would make it more, like, quicker to try to f- match the sh- colors, and it would let you work on multiple boards at the same time if you were doing that. Because um, I know a lot of times I was just trying to find, like, I would pick one palette, and it's like, okay, this is the one that I want to make look like the other one. Then I'd start dragging the boxes out of that one and trying to find empty spots on the other boxes just so I can have like a fresh palette to work on. Um, yeah, I was trying, uh, I thought about trying to do something where there'd be like a receptacle up here where you could get empties if you wanted them or put empties away if you didn't want them mm-hmm. so that you could choose kind of how much of the space you were dedicating to empties for sorting first, but I didn't end up doing that way. Yeah. There's only so much you can do in 48 hours. Uh, I think it's a great game and uh, I think it fit the theme. Well, as I mentioned earlier, the theme was running out of space. So it seemed to fit that theme very well. (laughs) Yeah, Joe. So, uh, we we talked before you got on. Uh, we were talking about the Knoxville Gaming Convention, the booth. Did you have any thoughts? <laughs> uh, it was good. I was kind of hoping. I guess there wasn't any other people on the meeting here this time, or uh, just Jacob. He got on, okay. and he had to drop off. So we we might have gotten some traction on the website or here, but yeah. No. Uh, yeah, I posted the reminder on Facebook, on the website, and did the email. And yeah, that's. Yeah, I need to set something on my phone that'll ring like a hour before. Yeah, it seems like I tried doing the Google reminder one time. Maybe I didn't do that with the Google Calendar. I can try to remember to do that again next time. No, I just I didn't realize it was two o'clock. That's <laughs> I was playing Dragon Quest and yeah. Oh, uh, I'm playing Dragon Dragon Quest Eleven. Yeah, yeah. I just started that's... that one. Um, I'm liking it. It's it's a little bit different. I mean, the core battle system is the same, but it's mm-hmm. just weird. I can actually see my character during the battle now. <laughs> yeah, it, it it's a lot like Eight, which I played on PS2. Um, I mean, it's a pretty classic jrpg story and mechanics so far which i kind of like because i mean the last couple games i've played that were franchises yeah (laughs) they try to do new stuff all the time and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't but sometimes i want to just sit back and 
you know, do a battle system where I know I can take my time and make choices and it's not all about button mashing and reflexes. Yeah, it's got the classic leveling up system. Seems like a lot of the spells remind me of the classic spells in the game. Now, they did add, like, uh, I'll forget what they call it, but where you can get new abilities, like the big orb charge or whatever yeah. like in Final Fantasy. They kind of did their version of that, which I've never seen in a Dragon Quest game before. It's pretty slow moving through the abilities, though. You don't get very many points. You kind of got to level three or four times before you get yeah, I, I, I like the art style. Akira, Akira Toriyama, who did Dragon Ball. I think he's been doing the Dragon Quest games as well since the beginning of Dragon Quest. I tried to play, uh, I think it was Dragon Quest Nine on the DS, and I only ended up playing that one a couple hours. I didn't get into that one, so... Because I remember the days back when Dragon Warrior here in the United States was like... Uh, yeah. <laughs> you probably know this, Dylan. It came like as a bonus for Nintendo Power subscription. Yeah, I remember. I didn't get that, but I remember when they, they put in the little inserts because no one knew what an RPG was over here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they called it Dragon Warrior, not Dragon Quest, back in my day. I'd still like to make a game like that at some point. It had like the, the apparently the the new one still uses a lot of the same formulas for like how the strength plus weapon damage equals your attack power and like how whatever it multiplies by 33 divided by 8 and that's like resistance and like the, the all the same math that they decided on 25 years ago that this is how strength and fire and wind and resistance and this is how it's going to work it still uses those uh, they've layered on more to it they've added different things new uh, elements and new whatever but it's still got that same base math and dragon quest it's like it's perfect it's very fine-tuned where it's like whatever that level one people have this many health and do this much damage and it really becomes quite tactical in the battle system it, it does seem like there were a lot of nods to previous dragon quest games like the intro theme it's got the classic theme mm -hmm. kind of like an eight uh the sound effects when you level up uh, even when the text boxes are populating you hear the little dink 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 yeah <laughs> um when you go in the new areas the footsteps oh yeah yeah that's still the same sound effect it's like from the first dragon quest game yeah <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I played Dragon Quest 1 or Dragon Warrior for the NES. I played that quite a bit. I remember I did really poorly in the fourth grade just because I was spending so much time playing <laughs> Dragon Warrior. Um, shows how old I, wonder, I am. I think I actually had the first Dragon Warrior on my calculator oh, wow. in high school that I had downloaded, like a TI-83+. plus. Yeah. Yeah, like and, someone made a version of it. That yeah, and it actually worked. Like It was like the whole game. Wow. It took up like all the space in the calculator, but you could play it, and nobody would know the wiser. Yeah. I think two, three, and four came out here in the U.S. eventually, but they weren't popular. So if you're able to get a hold of two, three, or four on NES cartridges, they're actually worth quite a bit. Uh, five and six, I don't know if they ever came out. I know seven came out on the PS1. A lot of them have been re-released now on something. I think I had to. 
Two was I didn't like play the- them back then, but I, I did play three and four on an emulator later, like in high school. I think two was the first one with multi multiple party members and maybe yeah. multiple enemies as well. Um, yeah, I think it was. I, I definitely know it was multiple party members. Four was the or oh, three, three that had job classes, and that was like the first time job classes had been done. I know. Then, I know. Final Fantasy three had job classes. Four was the one where it was like a really fragmented story where you jumped around who you were in control of and then you ended up putting a party together at the end. Yeah, I never played much of four. I did play eight quite a bit on PlayStation 2 and never finished yet. I don't remember what nine was. It might have been a DS exclusive. I know ten I think it was. And I think ten was like an MMO or something that I don't even know if it got released in the United States. So I'm, so. I'm glad with the eleven they finally went back and just made a standard single player RPG. <laughs> I know I think most of them have been re released on uh mo- mobile now too. Oh yeah, I had downloaded Dragon Warrior One or Dragon Quest One on mobile, but it's so weird to play with the touch screen. Yeah, I'm I'm terrible with the I can't play I like have emulators and stuff on my phone too, but I need buttons. I I don't like the n- nothing feel of tapping stuff. Yeah. Well, uh Joe, did you have any other thoughts on the booth or uh, I think we uh, went off on a tangent yeah. there. <laughs> the booth was was good. Uh, it was nice to see people coming out and asking about the group and seeing the group. A lot of people seemed surprised that there was anything in the area. There was quite a few people asking like for if there was their kid that was interested or their boyfriend or somebody else girlfriend that was Oh yeah, this would be good for them, uh, but yeah, we yeah we were talking earlier about like just making a huge banner or something that said like made in Knoxville or made in Tennessee because I mean I think that's one good thing that we have going for us especially when we're doing local events is like these games are made by us here in Knoxville and I think a lot of people didn't realize that at first or like okay here's some other games that are here that and mm-hmm. I think people didn't recognize like oh the level up stuff that was over off toward the back oh these are professionally made games these are games that are on major platforms but made by people here in tennessee yeah local locally sourced organic on gmo (laughs) free range yeah we'll add all those stickers east tennessee but yeah, Dylan and I were talking earlier. I mean, we've been in, me, you, Joe, and Dylan, and Jacob have been in this group for so long before we went to the online format. We're just kind of in the the natural routine of doing this once a month on the second Sunday, getting other people to come in. I mean, I know we've had people come and go, but just to get in that regular routine of coming in and yeah. joining us can be difficult. And also, you know, just the leap, if you know nothing about game design, I'm not sure what sits in that gap to get you over, you know, yes. to get you to feel like it's going to be worth 
showing up or worth yeah. signing up or whatever. Because it is like a time investment to get on here. And but Dylan, I, I don't know if I mentioned this on uh, the actual show, but you're you're planning on doing a talk on intro to game dev in November, probably. Yes, assuming like something doesn't come up, I've got a essentially like I've done this as a panel at cons. I just walk through building a Unity game in an hour. You know, nothing fancy, just like here's the low-level decisions you're going to make. Yeah, I think that will be a good one for new developers or people just wanting to get to learn game development. So I'll definitely like try to promote that as something. If, if people around here are interested in getting into game development, that would be a good one to attend. I'm not exactly sure what we'll be doing next month. I'm thinking maybe doing something on AI. If not, I may just do something on Pico 8 or Blender. So, Did you see the, the Unity Humble Bundle? Yeah, I have not picked that up yet. I was thinking about it. I, something... I was trying to watch a couple YouTube videos about making the jump from Game Maker to Unity from other people that have done it. Because uh, a lot of the stuff just isn't there by default in Unity that we're used to in Game Maker. Yeah. For how like all the objects already have create events and step events and the draw events and stuff like how they, the I guess just how YoYo sets up their dev environment. And how to kind of make Unity do that for you. What I'm kind of confused about is how everybody talks about these uh, scripting like resources, like Playmaker, or in this Unity Humble Bundle, they have Game Flow and they have something else. I think there's a popular uh, one called Bolt as Bolt. well. But how did those? How do you like use those with Unity and like know what you're? doing and what somebody else is doing like if i open a project that is a game flow as the editor versus playmaker versus like what is playmaker what is so unity allows you to actually build custom editors okay like like editing like tools in like windows and stuff like that and it actually changes what unity looks like for the user or it doesn't change so much as like it adds new windows like for example i built a little tool um that i use to to build across different platforms um that just creates like a window and says okay i want to create this build configuration it has these uh definitions here are the folders i want to exclude you know okay. so it's, it's just like this extra window that i can bring up but those are stored in the project. So mm-hmm. when you when you install an asset or something like that, it just kind of travels around with your project. So whoever opens that project should have access to it. Although, was there like you would only use one of these things? Like so, was it Gameflow? I'm gonna come look at the other one. Uh, I don't know how specifically how those work. Technically, you should be able to have them interact because it shouldn't be redefining anything in Unity. It should only be adding to. And Flow Canvas was the other one. But are those, are those the same kind of thing as Playmaker? Or is Playmaker something different? I don't know. 
Yeah, it sounds very similar. I haven't used those other ones, but it all sounds like it's visual visual scripting where you can create. They're called FSMs, which is like finite state autonomy, where you can create different states, and on each state, you add your logic. But all the logic is done by adding these actions, and the actions is like writing a line of code, like you're adding to a value, uh, you're allocating something. But then you can have, like, multiple states go to other states and you call these events. So it's kind of like event driven logic opposed to where you're like straight declarative function programming, Yeah, which I think it's good for like beginning. I was going to bring it up here. This may be kind of slow. Um, but my problem with Playmaker is it always it seems to always get out of sync with the version of Unity. Then when Unity gets yeah. to like they released a new version of Unity and they deprecate like the networking thing, I got to go through and update Playmaker on all my projects, which isn't fun. So, <laughs> um, well, it's essentially like these things are essentially a wrapper around Unity's UI or API. So if Unity changes their API and they don't update, like build a new wrapper around this thing or update their existing, you know, that existing yeah. block that you drag in. Like updating add-ons in WoW after every yeah. patch. Everything breaks and then, yeah. yeah Over the next couple of weeks, they'll fix themselves one by one if the people are still maintaining it. Yes. I think that's the real difference between them is do you trust these companies to maintain... Okay. You know. So should I use something like that, or should I just go into Unity and can I just like create a box and then open up a window somewhere that's like the C sharp code for that box and like what it does when it gets created versus what I want it to do every frame of the game or every step cycle? Yes. So so basically, what I don't know if I'm I don't know if you have anything to add in here, Levi. I don't want to. No. Like, so my, my game maker, the way I use game maker, I don't use anything. Like I, my rooms are practically empty and everything is done in code. I'll, I'll have a controller object that creates the things in the places that I want them to be created. And I have different objects that kind of exist that are like game flow control objects that are checking on things that exist in the yeah. global variables and executing things based on whatever parameters I set. You can do that in Unity as well. Like, in fact, that's what I've done in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. um, the way Unity works is, so you've got this concept called a game object. And a game object is just like anything in the game. Like, you can see what, like, Levi's got up, he's clicked on the menu game object. And that, that menu game okay. object has a transform that tells you where it is in the world. Well, the, but the what's the menu? Is that like a meaning like the title screen, or is that meaning like a um, UI element that's going to be on the thing? Or that's just an object in the game. So that that's what is this like little your... thing where where he's at now? Is that Playmaker? Yeah, this is Playmaker yeah. right here. This okay. window. So you also get a menu up here. Um, I was also going to mention earlier is like, well, the Hutong Games develops Playmaker, and they are good at keeping their stuff up to date. I mean, they've been out for like the last five years at least. The problem is they always lag behind the current version of Unity. So if if the latest version of Unity breaks Playmaker, it may be like three or four months until they get their stuff. Up it to seems date. like Playmaker is pretty widely adopted too. 
Yeah. Like I've, I've seen a couple of YouTube videos where I was trying to kind of understand. And that's like one of the first things they say is like, oh, just open up Playmaker and do this. And I was clicking around my Unity like, what are they talking about? Like, I think uh, didn't Play- really explain that Playmaker is not default Unity. I guess enough people use it that no. they just assume. Yeah, Playmaker, yeah. I think it's they, it's usually on self anywhere from like 60 to $80. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so you got like a, a game object like my player right here. It's kind of okay. like the game, I forget what's in, in, in Game Maker. But if you're doing scripting, then mm-hmm. uh, you have. There's, an, like a, there's a lot of properties here. Yeah. You don't <laughs> have to set all these? No. no. A lot of these you get by default. Yeah. Oh, oh you're talking about those there. I was thinking like this, in this the whole, inspector. The, what's the inspector? Yeah. The inspector, like basically, so each of those little sections with the triangle by them is a different component. So, for example, the capsule mesh filter and the mesh renderer, those are used to draw something. Okay. Uh, the capsule collider is used to detect collisions. Um, the but it does planing, it like with a, a plain geometric shape rather than the actual. Yeah, so that, that capsule collider just creates this little like pill-shaped object over and then like the the playmaker fsms are are the state machines that yep. are going to run on this object these are specific to playmaker so you really don't even need to worry about these really these just populate these fsms over here which is kind of like the different states that an object goes through like i have one for the player called health fsm so by default like the player's idle but whenever he's damaged then it's going to go to this damage action then it's going to subtract 15 using this action here from the player's health then after the player's damage we're going to have like a automatic transition called finished to go to check dead then it's going to check and see if the player's health is less than or equal to zero so if he's dead then it's going to call like do dead which you have to you have to do that with these little menus like this or can it just be a code block um see this this is like a design decision type thing this is good for like learning like unity and how how to program and stuff but sometimes it's easier just to write i health minus 15 yeah and then right below it have a if i health is less than or equal to zero exactly some, some curly brackets and you're what happens if it's dead but so if you want to do that like where was that so you had that eye health inner like that's your integer variable for that well where did that come from how does Uh, that that, that's defined under variables right here Uh and you can i can't see it here because i got this other thing hides no so you can create a new variable whatever you want to call it right here yeah. And then you can pick the type like an int oh, or boolean. Okay. string boolean. Then you could just click add right there. Then that'll add it. But it, this is only local for this FSM. Now you can make this global. There's mm-hmm. a different spot for globals, which I can't see right here. Now that's that's local to the point that it's only usable in specifically in the health FSM or in the player object. Um, I think it's specific for the health FSM. So you wouldn't be able to reference it from like their. There are ways in code to do it, but, but yeah. not easily. <laughs> yeah, and that's actually one of the things I really like about code is 
you get a lot of the abilities of C sharp. So for example, each one of those components on the inspector yeah. is a C sharp class. And the C sharp class is going to define what variables it uh, tracks in that component. Mm -hmm. It can define those variables as um, public or private, meaning uh, public variables can you can come out from another object and get to them. Uh, you can define statics, which means there's only one copy of that variable across the entire game, uh, okay. which is good for you know if you like have a single object. Um, and then it defines methods. And methods are just actions that that particular component can take. Um, and so that's going to be where you say, like, I have the awake and start actions, which fire when this object is created. I have the update action that, or a method that fires uh, every frame that's drawn. Um, and then you can also get other components and use their public properties and methods to kind of interact. Yeah, I think one of the things I'm getting into that's pretty complicated with GameMaker is like when I have an object collide with another object, or even I say collide, but sometimes I'm using it as like the mouse and you're clicking on something that I want it to yeah. go and look into that other object and check things within it or bring back up a layer um, like specific variables that are there. Um. um so basically you have two objects like okay i know that this object touched this other object and i want to pass data between them yeah um i guess one of the things i do a lot is with drag and drop but i mean i'm i'm 2d so i'm assuming i'm going to set up unity 2d yeah where i i'm if i've clicked an object i check that object if it is draggable and you're not already dragging something, or there's any like if you're open to being dragged, and it's true, then that it takes that object and make puts it into a state where it's being dragged. So it 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 updates its x and y on the screen with the mouse as you move it around. So you're dragging it around, and then yeah. when you let go, or if you click, it depend you know to to put it somewhere that it's able to let like check from the mouse to the thing you're holding to the spot you're trying to put it and see if that's a true possible place to put it like whether there's no other collisions or if there's something like with uh kufus i had the boxes where it was checking like how how full it was if that was a points thing like that it that's not setting top on something else that's already there that its shape matches the open space that you're putting it in. And then, like, if it's false, then it kicks the object back to where you picked it up from. Uh, or if it's true, then it lets it go there, and the object becomes there in that spot. Yeah. So, like, if you want to do that in Unity, you'd want to do that in an actual script and not Playmaker. Because that's where Playmaker starts. Like, in Playmaker, if you want to start doing arrays or start doing these complex calculations, it just gets unmanageable because you keep having to, like, add all these actions. So, I was just going to show, like, if you have your player object, which is like me moving around here, what you mm -hmm. would want to do without Playmaker, if you're not using Playmaker, the standard Unity way, you would create, like, a player script right here. And then you can drag this player script on player right here. Then when you double click on it right here, then it will bring up 
Visual Studio, and then you can like add properties to the player. So I'd do like okay. if I wanted to be pub, if I wanted to have a public health, I'd do public int i health. And if you save this and come back to your editor, and this is where it gets kind of weird, but it, it should allow you to actually change that health value in the inspector right here. Oh, that's once neat. It, okay. Once it recompiles. Yeah. So you kind of got to click off and you click on, then it'll recompile. It, after you've used Unity long enough, you start to realize when it's doing stuff and when it's finished. It doesn't give you yeah. an hourglass, but like right here, health, I can set it to 50. A lot of times I don't like using that method. Usually I'll just do like on start, I'll do iHealth.50. But this is where you can start getting into conflicts. Like if you put health is 42 right here well when you start this what is your health value is it using the inspector value is it using the value that's assigned here or is it using the value that's assigned here so it can get a little bit confusing like that but yeah. uh in game maker where you have step basically you have update here so you can do like if i want to give somebody like two health every second you can do eye health add and assign two and yeah. then to get it to go to seconds, you multiply it by times delta time. You'll see time dot delta time an it's awful del lot. Delta time built into Unity? Yes. Yes. Um, oh, okay. This That's is the nice. amount of time from the previous update to the next update. And after you've done this long enough, you'll actually get to, uh, accustomed to when to use this. It's kind of a standard thing. It's going to complain because this isn't an it. And I wouldn't actually do it this way. I'd probably have health as a float or something. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, so the, the only downside to using this method is if you have a lot of different states, like in this health FSM here, you're going to have to keep track of your own state. So typically you do that maybe with like a private bull is dead because sometimes when the player is dead, you just want them to lay on the ground for a second. You don't want the player to be able to move. So you'll yeah. do like a... Could you wrap like the whole update thing in a yeah if if they're not dead if the boolean's false yeah so you do yeah. it is dead is true is health but yeah so typically i have like one big one around here is like if not is dead right then put everything around this but a lot of times i'll do like a a function called public void handle input and then I'll put all my user controls in here. Then, then inside is if it's not is dead, then just handle input. That way you're not putting all your input code into here. But the one nice thing about Playmaker is like if you go to this FSM, you got controls. It's got like get access vector, horizontal, vertical. Then this isn't the best way to do this. I've been learning more about character colliders, but this this is also valid. You just do translate, and you select every frame. It's important to click that every frame. Uh, and, that, and that's all you need to do to make something move. Now, if you're doing this in script, then you're going to have to do like a vector3 uh, vet gets uh, new vector3.input.get access horizontal and these are actually defined in the, the properties properties property. checking the controller input that you have yeah so then and you assigning do assigning the 
then you do get Left access of the okay yeah so i'm doing i'm getting i'm making a vector three which is like a point 3d point in space and i'm getting the value of the control pad or the button press in the horizontal and vertical and assign that to vector then i can do a transform dot translate the one nice thing about this is it does have auto completion which does help uh transform translate on vector three or just vect and then i think we still want to do a uh, time delta time. Time delta time, just yeah. make sure. Otherwise, because you're not guaranteed that the time between frames is always consistent. Now, I think there is a fixed update, which I don't use, but apparently that's what, every, what you're supposed to use when doing physics and things. Dylan, you may know more about that. Fixed update is, I think, whenever physics processes, and I've used that. So, for, what, for example, what I've done in a lot of cases when I'm doing movement is I'll put the rigid body object in, which is supposed to, like, you can add force to that and do all kinds of, like, fancy physics stuff. What I'll usually do is I'll, I'll process the inputs in update, and then when fixed update rolls around, I'll just set the velocity of the rigid body, say, like, okay, this is moving this much in, this dire in the X direction, this much in the Y direction at this moment, and it handles the rest of it. Yeah, so, I mean, I don't know. I like Playmaker. I think it's good for beginning. Uh, but if you're doing stuff really complex, sometimes it's better just yeah. to do it in but, script. So, but all of the player's code will be in this one C-sharp script? You can actually Not do do multiple <laughs> You can actually do multiple scripts on an object. So, like I could have player underscore create, yeah. player underscore update. So typically I would have like maybe a monster script or an enemy script and that would hold properties of the enemy like their health and their attack points or attack value and things like that. But then I may want to have like a, a script specifically for a certain monster to control their behaviors. Uh, yes, yeah, so you could have a, like a parent-child system or no? Um, or would yeah. you drag the same script over? How does How does the player... Where did where did player come from in the game window there? Oh, it's just an empty game object. So you can do create empty, and you just mm -hmm. call it player. And then you drag the C sharp script over yeah. to it. Yeah. What I'll do in a lot of cases, if if I'm working on a really, you know, more complicated okay. game that that has like it reuses a lot of code, is I'll do what you're saying, like. You know, the player, I'll have a player movement script, I'll have a player damage script. They might talk to each other, but. They're you know, separate files they're separate. that you can. Um, you, can even, you can even do things like you can have your base enemy script and then add in different behaviors on top of that. Like for the little Metroidvania I was working on, I did a. It's like enemy base, walking enemy base. You know, and then on top of, you know, like jumping enemy base or something and just kind of add more functionality as you go up the chain. Um, one other thing that you'll probably run into is like, if I have an enemy, like if I attack an enemy and that enemy value gets passed to me, you can always do like on the game. So the game object is kind of like the base class that all this, uh, inherits for, even though it's, inheriting from mono behavior i'm assuming mono behavior i'm not sure if that's an interface or in, inherits directly from game object but you can do a get component 
Yeah. And mm-hmm. you'll probably... Game, on... oh, go ahead. Sorry. Game object is actually the container, mm-hmm. and that's separate. Like, mono behavior is for the component itself. Oh, okay. There's, like, slight differences between the two. Yeah, that, that stuff always get confused with. But any of these things here in the inspector, these, so these are the components over here, and all these little, like the plane, the mesh collider, and all that. So you can actually do a get component and say, I want to get the player object on that game object. Then you can do like player P gets that. So that's like a quick and dirty way. Some people say, oh, you need to define an instance variable up here called like player p then assign that like in your start and only have one or assign it in the inspector but uh if you're not doing this like on every frame i think doing get component or get game object is okay there's also like a hundred ways to do every specific thing and so <laughs> whatever way we tell you to do it is probably wrong yeah oh i mean it's, it's it helps that's uh wrong i'm trying to I'm not 100% sure if I want to jump over or not. Like, The main thing is now that I, I've got GameMaker Studio 2, but I don't have the export for WebGL or for Android or for iOS, then I would have to spend you know, four or $500 over there to be able to put my stuff back out. I think uh, if you ever anticipate doing 3D, it'd be worth going over to Unity. Um I don't know that I would like real 3D, but I think it might be easier for what I was trying to do with that little isometric 2.5D thing, because mm-hmm. that was that's pretty hard to do in in Game Maker, uh, and I feel like in Unity it would be easier that it would be 3D, but not like really behaving like 3D, because you still fix the camera or what you know panning around the view, but it's a lot easier if it. Even if you use something like uh, voxels or something to do a a decent fake 3D with it. Yeah. Dylan probably knows more. 3D, but the player doesn't move around in 3D space. Dylan can tell you a lot more about doing 2D in Unity than I can. I know there is a specific, when you create a new Unity project, you'll say, do you want to do a 2D project or a 3D project? And I think the physics for the 2D projects are different. It uses box 2D, whereas... The 3D uses yeah. NVIDIA or, or whatever the default physics is for 3D. You can, like, when you select that project, it doesn't really do anything other than give you default settings on the view and on the camera. You can mix and, well, you can put both the regular, like, rigid body collider objects and the 2D physics, you know, rigid body and collider objects, but they don't interact. So, it's... It's pretty similar, but you know, you kind of just have to pick one and go with it for a project. Yeah, I'd see myself mostly using 2D. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I, I can't really advocate using Playmaker or not using Playmaker. The one good thing about Playmaker is when you get objects with multiple states, it's like, oh, the player is alive and he, and he does have poison and he and he is jumping but he hasn't hit the ground yet well you got to start doing all this bull stuff in in a script like bull is landed you'll do stuff like this if you're jumping like private bull is in air 
and then you got to keep all these bulls straight. And so that's one nice thing about the FSMs and Playmaker. C Sharp does have a concept called enumerations where you can basically say, here are my five states, and then I have a variable that can only be those five values or something. And there's actually, I think, a way to turn them into flags where multiple ones of them can be true, but I always forget how to do that. So Yeah. I know the playmaker stuff can turn like into spaghetti when you once you get so many of these states. I, I think if you do like Dylan, like you're saying, if you do use enums or whatever, which I don't use a lot of enums, uh, that's probably better than this bull myths that I have. But it's probably always good to like draw it out on papers, like oh here's all yeah. my states and what it's going through, or not paper. <laughs> I'm old school, but uh, have it done. I think that's. That's actually a good idea because whether you whatever you end up using, you have to understand the state machine you're building. Because the advantage of Playmaker is you can actually see what's going on. You don't have to read the code and then like interpret it. What about scripts? Like, if I wanted to create a script um, that's that any object might call in their code to do something. Like, what's an example? Um, uh, that's the game I'm working on right now. I, I created a script to check movement. So it's a, it's a grid-based 2D game. And uh, any hero or enemy can run the script to check move, and they pass to it their X and Y and their move range. And then the script runs and it like starts with the tile one left of their, the X and Y that you pass through to the script. And it's like, is this move okay or not? And uh, what about two left? What about three left? What about four left? What about one up one two up three up? But it like in the inside of the object, the hero or the enemy object, all they do is script execute check move. And like, it goes to another like in Game Maker. It goes there's in the UI. There's scripts that are separate from your objects, and it runs. And yeah. Like you set up with the script. You you tell it at the beginning like which arguments it should be receiving from your code, and then you run all the the stuff you want it to do in that script, uh, and then send return back the result. Yeah, you can definitely do that. Like, there's a concept, like, one of the nice ways to organize it, there's a concept in C Sharp called a static class. And static class is just like a single object that sits out there. There's never multiple instances of it. And you can put, you know, static methods on that class. So you can basically create your own, like, helper method library. Is that what the, so method is what those would be like? Yeah. Would it be like its own .cs? file that exists out in the project folder somewhere? It depends on how you want to structure it. Like, there's yeah. not an easy way to create a a new C sharp script that isn't a mono behavior, but mm -hmm. it would basically be that. Can you work on your Unity project without Unity? Like, if you had your do you use? You said you use Visual Studio. Yeah, you can use. Have any. you ever used Eclipse? Uh, I've used. I think I integrated VI one time, VIM with 
Unity. But yeah, you can set any editor you want. And then just open up your C-sharp files and yeah. kind of work on them without yeah. the editor? Yeah, you can edit. Uh, I, I wouldn't advise it. Because <laughs> well, you can't compile it to make yeah, sure it's working. Because I'm usually going back. I'll make a change in my script, then run it, make a change, run it. Um, but yeah, it is possible because all the game files are in the assets folder. Like here's Ancient Adventure and here's Scripts. So they're all just CS. It does create these meta files. You don't have to worry about those. But yeah, I can go to this enemy right here, open a notepad plus plus, and there's all the behaviors. Yeah, I have a health drop tie yeah. for this enemy right here. I was going to mention like every object in Unity has some base properties. It has a position. I know you were talking about positions earlier. It has a, a base X, Y, and Z, at least for 3D. It has a rotation and scale, so you get... All those. X, Y, Z, and W. Um, uh, for rotation, yeah, it's just oh, got, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just got uh, X axis, Y axis, and Z axis. But there are things like Euler angles, which I don't know all about. But you can like calculate your own rotations from that. I think it's yeah. a quaternion class. Yeah, and it has a way. Like it's one of those things I heard of and i have no clue what it actually does but it it does have a way you can create it from the x y z and w like you're talking about but it also like you said oiler angles and whatever else yeah i always just like create a new game object <laughs> set rotation to quaternion identity which is like the default rotation for an object rotation matrix and then i just rotate it if i want it to be 180s backwards and i just rotate on the y-axis by 180 it uses degrees uh. i don't know like I, i'm not sure that i've i've hit anything with what i'm working on right now that i can't do in game maker i'm pretty sure game maker can do just about everything but I'm wondering whether it's going to be worth the effort that Game Maker would need versus no. switching to something where Unity, where it's, some of this stuff is built in, like that's already there in a menu, just a checkbox. I don't have to code my own stuff, like Delta Time. Like Game Maker doesn't do Delta Time by default. You have to make it. Yeah, because Game Maker just basically has step, and you just assume that it's called thirty times every second. <laughs> Yeah, but you can d d pick up on whether it is or not. You can run some step checks. Oh, yeah. You can you can float the difference in the step checks and then add that, like store it in a global delta time variable, and anywhere that you would normally say divided by sixty or whatever, you'd say divided by sixty times delta time. Oh, okay. Like same sort of thing there that you but. If you're not already doing it in Game Maker, you go back to try to add it to a project. You have to go anywhere you've ever said anything to be based on a number of frames and update it to include the delta time differential. Yeah. Or you just don't care. It's most it Game Maker projects aren't really struggling. Um I remember like yeah. really old like games on the 386. They wouldn't like check the CPU cycle. So if you took a game on a 386 and you ran it on 486, they'd like run twice as fast. Yeah, <laughs> there's still some like that with uh, with DOSBox. If you load up some of the old CD-ROM games and stuff, like if you if you don't set some kind of CPU limiter on there, 
you can't even play it. Like <laughs> it's like going light speed. Yeah. Remember on the <laughs> intro to Wing Commander, it is the original Wing Commander for the uh, PC? It was the same way. It's like if you had a super powered up machine, you wouldn't even be able to see the intro or something. It just go so fast. But the only other considerations with Unity is like if you are anticipating on making a hit game, it's like well, if you make over a hundred thousand dollars on your game. Or altogether or something. I don't know all the legalese, but you do have to give a percentage back to Unity. And if you don't have the pro version of Unity, then they're going to display the Unity copyright screen if that's an issue for you. Not um, really. I think most people yeah. they expect have, uh, yeah. And they have learned modif- to ignore it. They have modified it where you can put in your own logo and put in your own background, so it doesn't after look quite as bad. Yeah, because yeah. like mine, I think I put like Levi D. Smith games with a green background, and so you can make <laughs> it look pretty, and you can kind of tailor it for for your your. Uh, I think people just ignore those splash screens anyway. Even the big games still have like the Bink Video one or some other random the Cryware or the whatever. You don't care. It's a game. As long as the game works, I don't really care like how it was made. Games, they, I see like four or five of these, like different tools or technologies flash up. Yeah. Uh, I think if somebody them. like really wouldn't play my game because it was Unity Personal over Pro, then oh well. Yeah. <laughs> I actually think that was a big point of contention when they changed some of the licensing because people did not want, you know, people wanted better access to you know, to change that screen. Because, yeah, yeah there, there is a lot of shovel shovelware out there in Unity, and so it kind of has that reputation. Kind of yeah. like anything else, RPG Maker or whatever. Yeah, you get that RPG Maker title screen, you know it. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as it opens up, you're like, yep, this is RPG Maker. It's the same little three white square window. But I've actually played some really good RPG Maker games, so I don't. I just usually I won't go out of my way to go download a whole bunch of them and try them. But if if something floats up through, you know, I see it on Twitter or people are recommending it, and I see that it's got, you know, twenty, thirty, forty, or hundreds of good reviews for whatever reason, but some of them are actually really good. Yeah, I mean, I think. I think what it is is it's the accessibility of the engine mm-hmm. and the ease of making like a mostly polished game with it, you know, because asset yeah. packs and stuff. And I mean, I that, that's sorry. I don't know if I, if I got like a random game and it opened up to the default RPG maker, like that that hero with the blonde hair and the yeah, <laughs> I'd be like, uh, okay, look, but if. Other people, I'd just read about it first, mostly. Let's. I played one that was for a contest a while back last year or so. That was it was only like forty five minutes long to play, but it was like a really cool story. Like it was, it was almost a visual novel esque thing. It just the RPG maker is what they decided to use to tell the story. Yeah, kind of had to ignore. Like it didn't have battles. It didn't really use much out of there. I don't know why they chose to use RPG Maker, but it, it and, worked. That was the thing. Is Unity is kind of the same way. Like you can do good stuff with it, or you can use it to flip, you know, assets onto the Steam Store. 
you know. You can do that with Game Maker too. I mean, this. Yeah. I, not all my assets are my own. I mean, I'm not an artist. I've, I've no, done when, things. When people talk <laughs> about asset flips, they they don't mean like someone who takes the assets and then adds value to them. They literally mean just like buying hey, a pre-built game yeah, and, or. Yeah. Standard first-person shooter. Yeah, and here's some pre-existing zombies. Yeah, and guns and. I see that a little bit too, because people like um, Vlambeer, uh they've released their stuff to open source, like not the current retail build, but they like put out the Nuclear Throne, whatever, like 1.3 when they're on 1.5. Let's say two versions, ago, and they'll they'll put it out. They just like released it open source and like here's how we made this in game maker here's the game maker project file if you're curious then go take a look and then like the next day you start to see all these like here's nuclear not thrown with (laughs) purple enemies but it's my own game i promise like like no you copy and pasted their source code and yeah changed one thing and then Try to re-release it or whatever. That was happening a lot with Greenlight. Yeah, I've seen so some of like The Super Meat Boy, I think their source code is out there. A lot of the guys, that they're, they're either nice, like uh, Zach Bell, I think, who his name is, Ink. The guy who made Ink. That one's been released a couple times on things, like in Humble Bundles or whatever. I know Jim Sterling like made a living off making fun of bad green light asset yeah. flips. Yeah, <laughs> but Dylan, didn't you make a, a RPG maker game? I think you did a jam with somebody for Ludum Dare. Is like yeah. the one room RPG. It was pretty well done. Well, and that oh, that I, was like a puzzle. You had to like figure out which. Yeah, I think that's really the trick with stuff like that is. You know, people see the the title screen, or people see the 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 standard graphics, and it could be bad, or you could actually go in there and monkey with the mechanics enough to like really create something different, and that's what we were trying to do. Yeah, because that game that you made, I mean, I wouldn't have known it was an RPG Maker game if I didn't know that you made it with RPG Maker. <laughs> really, like that wasn't it. it definitely did look like an rpg maker game it was just the like it i think allowed you to die and then come back and you know stuff that you don't expect those games to do i think it was the one room game so yeah yeah i think you did a jam so it's like well i could tell that you were using pre-existing assets yeah i was like i don't think you all made those sprites over no. the weekend <laughs> no that would have been Very cool. Well, I guess that's it. And Joe, did you have anything else you wanted to show off, or? Uh, not yet. I mean, that's, I've I've done two pretty big things with this grid game that were both really hard to code in my head, but they're not very visually impressive. Like one was the turn order. Oh. Okay. I like create this battle actor array. Mm-hmm. That takes in all the heroes and the enemies that are in the room, at or like when the battle starts, and they all have a speed stat, mm-hmm. and it puts together the turn order for like the entire battle. Oh, that's interesting. That's kind of like Final Fantasy X, where you got the list of everybody and yeah. the turns in order. So, and but I didn't make any kind of visual element to it, so it's yeah. I know it's working because I can look at the 
array values and see that like if I tinker with somebody's speed to 10 or 12 or whatever that it reshuffles everyone's turn order and you can I've I've made it so people can be knocked back or they can be stunned and skip a turn they can have stuff happen to them where they get faster or slower haste or slow and it all works but there's just nothing to see I mean it's just like it's somebody's turn yeah cuz it's, it's pretty complicated on the back end that's I remember one of the first things I learned in computer science is like first in, first out, which is pretty simple. You just put the first one in and it goes out. But when you actually have things that go at different speeds, and that kind of throws yeah. that out the window. Everybody has a speed stat, and then everybody has a, a stat that I just called CC. I don't really know why. A common charge or something. But basically, they take their speed stat, and you add it every frame up to 100. And, like, whoever gets to 100 first, it's their turn. Oh, okay. And then they go back to zero. But the rest of the people stay where they're at. So if somebody's at 76, somebody else is at 85, somebody else is 90, then they'll continue counting to 100 after that person goes. Uh, and then, like, if two people both hit 100 at the same time, it takes who's ever higher on the thing. I don't... I don't think I actually made a, a step to cover if there's an actual tie. If there's two people that both go up to like 112 at the same time and they're both a speed of 14 or something. I guess you I just gotta... have to pick one then. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, I remember like in the original Dragon Quest and original Final Fantasy, it's like, okay, your party went first, your first guy went first, and your mm -hmm. second, third, and fourth, then the first enemy, then the second enemy. And then I think with Final Fantasy four or six, they introduced the active time battle system, which is kind of like what you're implementing here. Yeah, this where is, each character has like a gauge, and whoever's gauge fills up first gets to go. I want to add that visual element for the gauge, but it's going to be just on their hero screen, I guess. I'm not sure, but that's uh, what I was going for. Is what Final Fantasy Tactics uses. Oh yeah, I'm not uh, Final Fantasy Tactics. So basically. So basically, like, you have a list of all the characters, but you're not ke keeping a list of the turns or anything. Each character keeps track of his like progression in the meter for the active time battle system. Yes. Okay. And then you can, like, if you have something that, I don't know if I'll have an attack that's like a tar, whatever, like it could knock 20 or CC but it'll still keep track of where they're at in relation to everybody else. Or if you slow them down, instead of adding 12 each turn, it would only add 8 or something. Um, or if somebody gets knocked unconscious, or uh, if they're frozen or sleep or something like that, it could stop counting their turn or adding up to their turn while they're in that status effect. I always remember like haste and slow spells, and I never did use them. <laughs> like the red yeah. mage has all the time spells. Like okay, I just want to hit somebody. <laughs> the other thing was the moving. The the moving. I wrote this crazy long, like twelve hundred lines of code script for how to check where they can move. Mm -hmm. So like what how that one like the each hero or the enemy they have a move stat. And it's something like in the range of 40 to 60. Um, and then they have what I call a terrain handicap. So there's grass, there's road, there's rocky, there's beach, desert, 
whatever they have, like uh, so any particular unit, they might have a grass handicap of 15 and a road handicap of 10. So if they have a move of 50, they could go like three steps into the grass or like five steps on the road. I've never seen that done before. Combination of that. And what it's doing is the, the script is it's taking their move available and then it goes like one tile out in each direction, checking what kind of tile it is, subtracting their move available and, and determining whether it's it's flagging the tile as yes, they can move here or no, they can't move here. Because so obviously you think like water creatures would be able to move faster in the water, move yeah. more spaces than water. Desert creatures can move further in the desert and, and woodland creatures can move faster in the woods or something. Exactly. Like that. And that's uh, another thing that could be affected with a stat of some sort. Like you could equip certain boots or something that give you forest walking and somebody that previously was not good at moving through the forest would be able to move through the trees better. But then also it had to take into account like um, if there's enemies, you can't move under the same square that an enemy is. If there's other immovable objects like a ground unit, with like a wall or something or a sign or a barrel or whatever, an environmental object. They can't move on top of that, but they can move around it. That was what threw me off. So I started doing a script where it would like, it checked to the left and then it would check like up and down from that tile to the left and then left and right from the tile that it checked up and down from and then up and down from the tile yeah. that it checked left and right from. And then I, I ended up scrapping that whole system and doing oh. a thing where each tile checks all four tiles around it oh okay now what happens with that is there's there's a lot of wasted processing because when it checks one tile to the left the first thing it's going to do is check one tile back to the right oh this is like a painting algorithm kind of (laughs) it's already checked that tile to the right when it was checking the first time so each tile and then like it's kind of uh there's a problem if i if i give somebody like a move of 600 Mm-hmm. Would they be able to like move anywhere on the whole board? It does lock it up right now. That it there's uh, like severe slowdown because yeah. it's almost uh, like a factorial problem there, where every square going from six hundred or like forty to sixty is not a big deal, but going from six hundred to six ten is a huge deal because it means one more tile checked off of every other tile in every direction all the way around it's like it's reminding me of like computer theory and big o and compute time and the n log n algorithms and the o square or the theta law squared algorithms and all that it's like once you add another loop in it adds like an extra level of complexity yeah and well and that's the thing is i i actually ended up making this thing recursive so that each tile if the tile that the first tile that it checks is true that it can do that tile, then it runs that its own script inside of the script to check that tile and the four tiles around it, and it will continually do that until it hits the wall or hits an enemy or hits something that it can't move once you run out of move available. Yeah, I I did kind of deal with that problem when I was doing the match three. Um, by like I think it passed around a two by two array of the game objects that I was actually working with. Yeah. I also created a separate two by I think I created a separate two by two array that basically flagged have I checked this tile yet? And so when it goes through the recursion, if it 
sees that it's already checked that tile and just stops. Yeah, I have. I started doing that, and and it broke it because what I realized is I didn't want it to check if it had checked that tile yet. It needed to know has this tile checked the tile around it yet? Because like okay. left two up two is going to be different than left one up to left one the pathing matters if there's yeah. an enemy or a rock or something to go around how it got to that title could potentially be different whether something like if whether their move like if they're going along the road for three squares and then up one versus just trying to go over two through the desert or something like that it's like a pathfinding algorithm to, uh, couldn't you like do they actually have to pick that path or pick between multiple paths? Not yet. That's the so I'm, I was still just kind of tinkering with it. Where like it, I've been messing with it. Where I, like I give the hero a move of fifty, and I put a couple enemies around them and have them somewhere on the road, and I like, I'm just double checking that it's working, and right now it isn't working, and if for some reason it's not working downward, but it is working left, right, and up. And I'm not sure what I did wrong. <laughs> it seems like what you could do, I don't know how you would do the second step of it, is you, just the first step is like display the tiles that can actually be touched, and then when mm -hmm. the player actually selects a tile, that's then when calculate you calculate the out. path? Yeah. yeah. Which path it was? I'm, I'm yeah. thinking, I'm leaning toward just having them teleport to the... Yeah, if, so have the check happen that figures out what all is possible... And then you'll highlight the tile you want them to move to, and then the, they'll just move to it. Like, bloop, blink. There's, there's probably still a way to do... Actually follow the path that the... Yeah, because that would be a different algorithm, but I, I want to say there's like a pathfinding algorithm where you assign like costs or something, and then there's a way to calculate that. Yeah, I tried to use uh, something before I wrote this one that was somebody else's code, and it it half worked, but I couldn't figure out why. Like it was, I was struggling to understand the, their reasoning behind what they were doing. So I just wrote it from scratch. Yeah. The checking each direction individually was working, but there was no way to check. I didn't have it set up so it like would check forever. I manually set it to check left, then up, then left, then up, and then like then down then right, then down, then right, on its way back through. And I would just have to pick a level of depth there, like how many turns do I think a potential unit could ever have? Because if I wasn't telling the code to check another level of depth, eventually it, it stopped checking. Yeah, I think recursion would definitely be the way to handle that, but I don't know how well GameMaker supports recursion. Seems like creating yeah. custom functions in GameMaker, when I tried doing it, it really wasn't uh, trivial on doing that. It's like, oh, you had to go and do a bunch of weird stuff to make a custom function. Whereas if you did do it in Unity, creating functions in recursion are pretty easy. You just watch out for <laughs> infinite loops. Oh, yeah, I've been hitting those very often. <laughs> because well. of, in Unity, if you press the play button and you hit an infinite loop, then you got to basically kill the entire Unity editor. <laughs> um, there are scripts that will save your game before you go into play mode. So I always drop one of those in so it'll actually save before I press the play button because eventually, 
all of us are going to ride an infinite loop. And oh yeah, yeah. No, I do them all yeah. the time. Game Maker has like this little uh, stop button where it will close the um, compiler window. But if you, if you were to actually create the executable and run it, then yeah. Um, but it, there is an escape clause in the in the Game Maker like preview run. So if you do act trigger an, an infinite loop, you can still stop it. Yep. Yeah. There is a way. I mean, I would have thought by now Unity would have fixed this problem. Um, but there is a way to like go in and attach a Visual Studio <laughs> process to yeah. that and go in and change your variable and just to get it out of the loop. But for me, it's easier just to kill the process and restart Unity. Yeah. Although that's that's actually a neat feature, just attaching Visual Studio, and you can just pause at any point and see what's going on. It, it seems like yeah. it's, it still requires like changing the variable to get out of the loop to, yeah. to break it out. Which yeah, there was and I've seen that with Game Maker too, where uh, the last line of the loop you do something like add one to the variable and set some kind of thing where like if it reaches a million, then break the loop just to have a uh, some like. It'll, if it works like it's supposed to, then it should be done before that counter reaches a million, and you're you're fine. It works. Nobody ever knows any different. That but if it does lock up, and then that thing will count, that'll all it's be doing, and its loop is counting that variable up, then it will break out of the loop after, you know, forty five seconds or something. I, I know if you are using Playmaker, Playmaker will do that. If you create an infinite loop within the the, the state machine, the FSM, then after like a thousand loops, it will uh, say, hey, you're in an infant loop, and then it will yeah. let you close it gracefully. But I guess it's like, well, if you're doing it in the script, they expect you to know, you know what you're doing, and like allocating another variable to count the number of loops uh, is just unnecessary memory allocation, so they don't do it. But. And basically, like, you were responsible for your own fail-safe. <laughs> like, here's the gun. If you shoot yourself in the foot, then it's not our fault. <laughs> I've, I've actually done that, like, writing, like, business software code. Like, okay, I need a recursive loop to make sure, you know, I process all, you know, all the elements in this list or whatever. And, like, I'm going to put a check in to make sure that if I go through the loop and don't change anything, then it exits. Yeah. Very cool. So, uh, Dylan, did you have any other projects or anything else this month? Nah. Okay. So, yeah, check out Dylan Wolf. He's DylanWolf.com. Dylan Wolf on Twitter. Uh, Joe Miller, he's double square LLC.com and double square Joe, I think on Twitter. I'm Levi D. Smith, uh, GA Tech Grat Grat on Twitter, everywhere else. So, anyway, that's it for September uh, 2018. We'll be back in a month. Thanks everyone for uh, watching on YouTube, uh, listening on iTunes and Google Store, and everyone else.